The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm here very delighted to have His Grace Dayananda Prabhu with me today. Dayananda Prabhu, thank you for joining. Hare Krishna. So Dayananda Prabhu, I know him from many years ago when he was living in New York and at uh, 26 Second Avenue, uh, heading up the programs there. I haven't spoken to him since. It's been about 20 years or so. Uh, as a kid, I went there. It was, it was a very wonderful um, experience there. Uh, so Dayananda Prabhu has actually been uh, in ISKCON uh, since 1967, in the administration of ISKCON since 1967 to 2005. Uh, he's been working on a book that he'll talk about uh, later today and uh, which is about um, environmental issues and Vaishnava culture. Uh, but first, I would like to ask Dayananda Prabhu if you could please tell us about your background, uh, how, where you were raised, and then how you got in contact with Krishna consciousness. Yes, certainly. I was raised in... I'll, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, I, Or did I contact you to ask no, someone else someone else recommended you and i was actually thinking of you previously because i know you 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 know you have a lot of experience in iskon and in krishna consciousness so i did want to so somehow krishna made that all made it all happen nice and uh, i was doing my homework I, I i admit i've known about your podcast for some time but um i recently in the last few days in preparation i try to do a little homework and i will watch a a bunch of them, you know, just sort of quickly went through and tried to get the gist and fantastic. And you just have this fantastic array of devotees. I mean, I that, that's a personal sort of favorite of mine. I'm not this guy. I have my own personal opinions, sometimes quite conservative, sometimes quite liberal, depending on who I'm talking to. <laughs> but one of my Maybe it's a liberal perspective is that I like the idea that the Vaishnava community is open. Who was it that was talking like this? It was Mahatma. Mm. In one of your interviews, uh, Mahatma was, was saying that, uh, that, yeah, it's, you know, some people are Trump supporters. Some people are, you know, pro and anti, you know, so I think, that the idea that a Vaishnava community can embrace all different kinds of views is it's a it's a sign of maturity and it's a sign of the the breadth of the community. Now, in an organization like ISKCON, I mean, I don't like to criticize uh, ISKCON at all, especially in public. But um, an organization like ISKCON may have trouble. A, a, being as broad as the, the let's say the extended Vaishnava community, right. but I think that what I'm trying to say is in support of Mahatma's idea what he said. So yeah, you can, yeah. those in the audience can refer back to Mahatma. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was a great episode. Anyway, you were you were saying so that was my uh, long thank you, and uh, you. 
you were saying that uh, you were asking about, okay, I grew up in Southern California in a Los Angeles suburb called Pasadena. Some people know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where, um, that's where the uh, Big Bang Theory, all, all those guys were supposed to be going to Caltech. They were oh, right. Okay. Caltech. And that's where my father wanted me to go. But I, I instead, I out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps because I was a spoiled California kid. And I thought, oh, they'll get me in shape. And I thought, oh, when I stepped up the bus, I thought, oh, oh this is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, I endured that for three years and then uh, started to go to college. And then my girlfriend convinced me to to drop out of college and go with her to San Francisco and and then travel around the world. And I had this idea that, that yeah, I want to see different cultures and I'll start with Europe. And then maybe if I'm lucky, I'll end up in India. And, and there, that's a fascinating place. And in those days, in the 50s, 60s, we knew nothing about India because uh, it wasn't until 1974 that there was uh, uh, sort of Im- immigration rules changed. And uh, the, there were strict restrictions on on Indians, so America only let you know like nuclear physicists and and you know really highly uh, educated uh, Indians and people from other countries. So so India was a fascinating thing uh, to us and and. Indians, and uh, I think Prabhupada was the first Indian person I I ever met. Wow! So, um, <laughs> is that right? Yeah. So anyway, um, so three years in the in the Marines, and uh, luckily I didn't go to Vietnam. And then, uh, so we went to San Francisco, and we. Uh, she ran into somebody and uh, who told her about the temple. I would, I got a job right away to support us. And, um, she ran into somebody who took her to, for Prashad, you know, and I, she said, uh, I met these really cool people, you know, they serve vegetarian food. And that was another thing. I was very interested in veg. I wasn't vegetarian, but I had a friend in the Marines who had, who was, and, uh, he used to visit yogis also in the LA area, which I thought was fantastic. And I thought I was a little embarrassed that I wasn't on his level. You know, I won't tell you what level I was on, <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't on his level yet. I thought that this is a very, I don't know, we would say pure life, but I didn't have that in my vocabulary. So, Anyway, vegetarian, and so I said, uh, she said, oh, and they're really nice people. And I said, I said, oh, yeah, do they smoke pot? They must smoke pot if they're really nice people. <laughs> <laughs> so a little, like, a little hint where I was. <laughs> anyway, so fast forward, we, uh, we went to the temple that night, that same evening. She'd gone in the midday, and we went that evening, and and um, 
everyone was there. Nobody was in a dhoti or anything like that. That that came later. And but some devotees had these uh, red beads, these large red beads. That that was sort that sort of signal to who a, uh, a devotee or an initiate was. And then Prabhupada walked in, and and most everyone paid obeisances, and that was like extraordinary to me and then Prabhupada chanted and you know we chanted for he chanted for a long time and I thought when's this gonna be over is he is this the whole thing isn't he gonna talk or anything so then he started to chant the Bunday hung Bunday hung Shri Guru he started chanting I thought, oh god I can't believe everyone is just sitting here to listen to this in a foreign language you know nobody knows this language I can't. <laughs> so these are all the thoughts that were going what year was this 67 it was the beginning of 67 wow that's super early <laughs> I just turned 21 and um it's been 55 years so what is it I'm that makes I'm 45. Is that right? I'm 45 years old. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, then, um, yeah. So these were the thoughts that went through my head, and and then finally he started to speak in English, and I thought, oh God, it was such a relief, and and I was just, I. I I don't know how, but somehow or other, I was just so glued to every word he said that I'm pretty sure I I understood him in spite of have, the first time having ever heard that accent, the Indian accent. So wow. I, I think others may have had some difficulty, but I, I was so, I paid so much attention. And... I had this sort of general idea that maybe some time later in life, you know, based on things I'd read when I was a little younger, that sometime when I grow up and experience the world, maybe I'll somehow go to India and find a master and become enlightened, you know. So that was my idea. And then, so pretty much right away, I thought, oh my God this is the one he's come here you know so it was really uh, i think an immediate connection although i wasn't ready to to get initiated right away because i became aware of the um restrictions and things like that that took some time but the other thing that there are a couple of things i just wanted to comment there are a couple of things that hmm, excuse me, that really, uh, sorry, I just had a little something no before we started. So aside from the standard, I mean, I had, the, I imagined that I really liked the philosophy. And when I asked for initiation, Prabhupada said, so you like the philosophy? And I said, oh, yes. And, uh, but I don't, it, it took me about, I think it was about two or three years later, 1971, I decided that I didn't really know. And so I started to learn Sanskrit and, and really work on understanding the Gita and the Bhagavatam. 
anyway, so philosophy I liked, and obviously Prashad. And um, but one thing I I really liked was the group. You know, the sangha, the the devotees. You know, there was uh, my first real service was. Well, my first service was I. Upendra told me that it was good to wake up early in the morning. So I got up at four and went to the park and stole flowers and brought them back for the altar. So that was my first, this, but the first real service I consider is that Hayagriva stood up in the temple and said, can anyone type? And I said, yes. And so uh, I ended up typing the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, which was, we, we didn't have a Gita. The only books we had were the uh, three volumes of the, Bhagavatam that Prabhupada had brought with him from India. Right. So, um, so that was really good. I mean, the sec to type that. Well, I, I did read. I, I read the three volumes actually, and I, I carefully read them, and and then I also typed the second chapter, which was a good chapter to to type or to study from the from the Gita and. Um, what was I, oh yes, I was talking about the things that really attracted me because I think it's a little different to uh, some of the experiences I had. But one of the things that attracted me was the culture because mm -hmm. I was already interested in culture. I had this idea I had to go around the world and experience these different cultures. And, and I had these uh, sort of low life friends actually in high school and they were thinking that Southern California culture was everything. And I thought, well, what about Europe and the rest of the world? You know, <laughs> so I, I was, I was kind of like that kind of person. I wanted to know about the world. So when I came to the temple, there was art, there was obviously there was music chanting and then the Prabhupada was very interesting and the philosophy and and oh the incense and the food was exotic all these things for me they were a cult they were part of a culture I got this window into a culture even though of course we have so much more I mean you said on one of your um, interviews that you went to to Vrindavan for five months and it was really a moving experience, right? The, yeah, yeah. I spent uh, about a year and a half. A year and a half. Almost two oh. years in. So I think that it's, for, for many people, I think that that's, being exposed to the culture can really be beneficial. I I mean, I just got exposed to like a fraction of the culture. Go After I been around for a while Govindasi and Gorsundra painted these the series of Prahlad Maharaj paintings there's I don't remember there may be as many as 25 of them or something you know the story of Prahlad and they were all hanging up in the temple we had Rajbasi prints we had prints of, of Krishna and Rama and others you know from that were printed in India nice ones but uh, but these, the story of Prahlad, so art, I thought, wow, this is, the art is amazing. And then 
here's the thing that really impacted me was that this this couple uh subal and krishna devi they got married so we went to the wedding and that was incredible this just like completely different from anything i'd experienced and again for me that was a that was a cultural sort of a window to the culture and and that's I didn't know anything about initiation. So when we decided to be initiated, uh, we went to Prabhupada and said, well, we'd like to be married because we knew that that you had to be married. But he said, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend have to be married. And um, so he said, we'd like to be married. And the whole idea and in my mind, I guess our minds was that we wanted to join the group and be official members of the group. So uh, then Prabhupada said, oh, well, you have to be initiated first. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> okay I want to be initiated. <laughs> and then he said, so you like this philosophy? I said, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and he said, all right. So initiation and then I have a question regarding the culture. You said you were attracted to the culture. You didn't ever think this is like something from a different country and I like the philosophy, but I may not want to accept the the way it looks or the way the food is or something like that. Okay, you really led me into this next one. Okay, I want to <laughs> uh, thank you for that question. Yeah. Uh, what? Where am I here? Oh, yeah. So the first three volumes, we had the first three volumes of the Bhagavatam. And right in the preface, at the end of the preface, there's this, uh, it's only one page or two pages long. Uh, Prabhupada quotes this verse from the first canto. On the other hand, that literature, which is full of the descriptions of the transcendental glories of the name, fame, form, and pastimes of the unlimited supreme lord is a transcendental creation meant to bring about a revolution in the impious life of a misdirected civilization so somehow or other this had an impact on me because i mean i read that and then i i was probably going about my life for a little while and then all of a sudden it hit me and because I'd been in the military three years, so I had had this very conservative sort of influence. I mean, I was sympathetic to the counterculture, but I really wasn't in the counterculture. And I used to argue with socialists, so I wasn't a liberal <laughs> and maybe a kind of a libertarian or something like that, you know. But so... And my father was conservative, my mother liberal. So so I had this very conservative influence. And so it, all of a sudden it dawned on me, if I, if I do this, if I join this thing and become part of the group, and this is opposed to American society. So that was something that 
that really struck me. It was a decision that I made. I mean, I, I didn't ask Prabhupada about it or anything like that, but it was, it was basically a decision I made that, it, that I made up my mind to be opposed to American culture at that time, a, bi a biased toward this other culture. I okay. guess people were already people were already kind of going away from the culture of their parents, counterculture, etc. So this to 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 maybe, but you weren't a part of that so much, right? Like like you said, but that was kind of the mood at the time. I think in the '60s, wasn't it? Yeah, but it really started that they they often say that the hippie movement kind of started with the summer of love, which was. It's the summer of 67 and and we arrived in san francisco in february and I, like i wasn't clueless about what was going on yeah, but yeah. when 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 my girlfriend nandurani when she suggested going to san francisco i said what for i've been to san francisco i don't want to go i want to travel she said no it's really happening in san francisco so what's happening you know so so I think that when I joined uh, Prabhupada's group, it, it, it was a little before, there were a lot of hippies, yes, and sort of long hairs and Sonny and Cher and, and the Beatles were growing their hair and all these people, you know, but 67 was a little before it, it became... A, a counterculture, I think. Okay. Right. Anyway, this is all. Oh, this is getting a little too long. I was hoping we could. There's some other. Uh, yeah. I wanted to cut to the chase. Anyway, so culture and revolution. And I think that I've seen myself interested in culture and also as kind of revolutionary for since that time. The other thing is that an, an anti-American culture, I mean, which is kind of interesting. I worked for IBM for 18 years, but I don't, uh, I don't have any affinity for American culture. Anyway, we could get kind of get into that in a minute. But uh, um, regarding Vaishnava culture, uh, I do want to mention that uh, that in a couple of years later, in 1970, uh, I was temple president of the Los Angeles temple, and Prabhupada called me into his room. And excuse me, it was kind of about uh, correcting me for something. Kind of, it was about correcting me. <laughs> and, but that. That's not so relevant, but the, um, the the point is that for about an hour he talked to me about Vaishnava culture, and or just the traditional culture. He told me this story. I mean, you can see a lot of this stuff online if you search that the story of his his uncle, I think it was, who had a who had a cloth shop and he used to put rice out for the rats and the rats never oh, yeah. had cloth. That yeah. story, you know, and another story was about this friend he had 
who was a disciple of a yogi. And then when he went to visit the yogi, the yogi would call out and tell the tigers that it was his disciple and not to bother them. And, and then what's another? Oh, and one of the things that you don't find actually in, in the database that really struck me was he said, you know, by this time I'd been a devotee for what, what is that? 73 years, three years. So I was an old devotee by then. So, so uh, he said that the villagers used to go to the Brahmin's house for entertainment. And I thought, that's amazing, uh, amazing concept. And I've thought a lot about that since then. I, once I went to uh, Mayapur and Atma Tattva entertained us. And he oh, told he's me, great. Yeah. I got to get him on the podcast too. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. And he's from South India. He's, and he was telling telling a story about how he joined the Padiatra and they went to to uh, Orissa. It's funny, this is like 40 years ago or something. He went to Orissa and uh, and they met his wife who's Orissa and and how, um, he, uh, what was it? He, oh no, it's escaped me. But anyway, so he, he was telling these stories about his life and just like interesting things, you know? Yeah. Not like sometimes you get together with devotees and you're like, you know, oh, I don't like ISKCON's this, ISKCON or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of opportunity for that. But it, so Amitabha was really entertaining, you know, and I, I don't remember, but I imagine we chanted a little bit or something, you know, so. And then obviously, you know, he served, served us Prashad and then we gave him a donation. But the thing is that I thought, you know, this is it. This is what Prabhupada was talking about. You know, that you go to the Brahmin's house and I mean, there's the Bhagavat Sapta, you know, that Prabhupada didn't really like that. You know, the seven days of, of Bhagavat recitation, those kind of things. But mm -hmm. there's just... Anyway, I want to talk about that a little later also. Um, sure. So culture, that's something that impacted me right from the beginning. And then, so let me say, let me kind of conclude this. Uh, the uh, So then right away, Prabhupada said, uh, you know, he wanted us to open temples. There was no real... Sankirtan at that time. So Sankirtan was to open a temple. So we went to LA and opened a temple there and struggled for a year or so until Tamal and his men came and uh, really made it take off. Gargamuni, Gargamuni started the incense business and we made enough money to buy that temple that's there now. So wow. the, uh, so taking responsibility, I think that's what the Marine Corps taught me really was taking responsibility and and stepping forward and doing the needful and things like that. So even so though you I were in leadership, leadership positions throughout the years, I was the I was for the first year because I L.A. was one of the first temples. It was one of the seven temples that that got opened in the beginning. So I. 
I was in some letter to Brahmananda that as kind of like one of the society's leaders. I always pat myself on the back, like one of the, one of the forerunners of the GBC, but, but actually later on in 1970, when Prabhupada established the GBC, he, I know he never told me directly, but I know he was considering whether or not to make me GBC and decided not to. I told him all that once and he said, yeah, that's probably a good decision. <laughs> anyway, I had a very interesting relationship with Tamal because I joined a little before him and I'm like six months older than him or something, you know, so. And he never, a lot of devotees were kind of afraid of him, but I, I, I kind of resist authority a little bit. So I, <laughs> so anyway, so. <laughs> I have to tell it now I've introduced them all. I love them all. So, so we, we were working together in 1969 in LA. So fast forward to 1976, we happened to come together in New York at the big temple in Manhattan. And then we happened to be on the same flight to India, Tamal and I. So we're riding in the car. Of course, he's the big devotee, and I'm just like the middle. I'm the, after that, probably. Anyway, after others were more qualified, I was very responsible and step forward kind of person, but I didn't know how to be charismatic or, or really a leader of people. You know, I had to learn that kind of thing. But anyway, and I was kind of shy as well. So, so here we are, I'm riding to the airport with Tamal and, uh, and then he says, you know, Dianandi says, you're like a father to me. <laughs> and I, wow. That's very, yeah, I was kind of stunned. I thought, you know, like, thank you, Maharaj. And then, so we get out of the car and then he turns to me, he says, Dianandi, can you take my luggage? <laughs> <laughs> Or, or maybe even more direct, you know, try not to take my luggage. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I love tomorrow. So, uh, so here I fast forward. So LA, I got to see the growth, the birth and growth of LA. There were a lot of devotees came like Tamal and Vishnu John and Jayananda. And, and in 1969, there were all these brahmacharis and, and brahmacharinis as well that later became sannyasis and gbcs like madhuvisa and sudama and, and uh i don't know everyone was coming through la like hansaduda and and then jayatirtha joined and all these people who later became the society's leaders you know i was sort of there you know so they all knew dianonda i i know all these old people of course now they're all dying so i don't know anyone anymore <laughs> but so uh la was wonderful and then uh and then i went to various places for various reasons you know to sometimes political reasons iskon was like that you know kind of I, I wasn't very good with politics and and sort of standing my ground and being paranoia like 
like I won't mention any names from New York, but um, <laughs> what they would tell you to would they tell you to go to different places like after LA were they like okay now go here now go there? Well, no, not exactly. I don't know. I, I don't want to get well. Okay, just as an example, since they're not around really, I yeah. I had this. I was one of three leaders in Los Angeles in 1971. It was with Jai and Karandar. And so they kind of demoted me. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to London. <laughs> oh, so you're just like, oh, I'm out. And because they, right, I got you. Because I didn't know how to fight with them, you know. So <laughs> they. So I went to Shamsunder. I said, I heard you need somebody in London. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, great. He was the GBC there. So anyway, that's an example. Anyway, so um, I love them both. I love Jayatirtha and Karandar, but I was just a kid, 23. I didn't know how to sort of stand my ground or something. Mm -hmm. And maybe I had enough self-doubt that I was, okay, maybe I'm not. So... um, and where were you when Srila Prabhupada left? Iran. So mm-hmm. he, jumping forward to Iran, that was uh, uh, the last uh, two years and then another year after Prabhupada left. So it was it was basically uh, early 76 to 79. So Prabhupada visited, uh, I think, twice during that time. And... Um, Iran was an incredible experience for me. Yeah, tell us incredible. about that. That's fascinating because in those times, I mean, that was before kind of the American-Iran relationships kind of soured or not yet. Well, it was very pro-American because oh. the the history of Iran is that uh, just quickly, I don't know why, when I get into history, I get, I'm kind of a history buff. Me too. I have a degree in history, actually. Are you really? Yeah. Well, the history of Iran, in brief, is that <laughs> yeah. England had a uh, a favorable relationship for, for oil, with uh, getting oil from Iran. You know, the the European powers had, you know, they were screwing the uh, screwing over. I guess is the proper term <laughs> for. Them. The oil rich countries, you know, they would go in and they would say, we're going to give you this great deal. We'll take we'll take this oil. We'll refine it. We'll ship it. And then we'll take 80 percent and pay you 20, you know, or whatever it was. You know, I'm maybe exaggerating, but I don't think so. So Iran had this deal with England from the early 20th century. And then after the war, uh, Second World War, uh, England was weak. So the the Iranians were were saying, "Hey, we we uh, what was his name?" Uh, anyway, so, so there was this populist kind of prime minister who was he um, said, "We got to get these British out of here." And then the British came to the Americans. They said, "Look, you got to help us." and Americans said no, and then finally, excuse me, finally, uh, I can't remember which administration, but anyway, finally they said yes. 
So they sent the CIA in and they they propped up the Shah, kicked out that prime minister and uh, and created a lot of favorable propaganda for Americans. And uh, and it remained that way for for another um, whatever it was, 15 years until yeah. until the religious uh, until Khomeini. So. So we, when we went, it was very favorable for Americans. And then the environment was such that uh, it was a good place for native English speakers to go. Uh, they would go there, like Australian hippies or, or British or American, whoever, or whoever else could speak English like a native speaker and then teach English. So if you talk to the military, that was the best paid, I guess, and then private companies. So devotees would would go. I got a job in computers, and uh, Atreya Rishi is Iranian. <clears throat> he was the one who started the temple there. Oh, wow. he's, he's from a Baha'i family. Now, the, the Muslims hate Baha'is. Anyway, it's a whole complicated story, and uh, and I love it. I I. Like I said, I, I'm a culture buff. You know, I love the whole idea that this is Iran. Oh, my God, I had no idea what what's Iran. And Prabhupada suggested that I go, actually. I was between services in Mayapur and Prabhupada said, why don't you go to Iran? So I had a choice. Do you know why, you know why he said Iran out of all places? Well, they needed some help. And Atreya oh, okay. had asked him and... And a few devotees at that time went. I mean, it was difficult. It was so different from ISKCON, the way Atreya was conducting things. And uh, mm -hmm. it was very low-key. And devotees didn't like that. They they thought, this is Maya. We're not going on Harinam. And, and you know, we can't, you know, I'm going to. What was he doing? What was he doing? Programs? Like one of the things that. His rule was that for two weeks you're a guest, and after that you have to get a job. <laughs> oh my God! Really? Yeah. So that's so different. That's yeah. so different. Yeah. These. Well, how are you going to stay in the country? You know, and what are you going right. to do? You're going to just hang around the temple all day and do, right. What we didn't have deities. We we didn't want to have deities, and that's what do you call it? shirk, you know, or something. I forget Islam. Oh right, yeah, you can't do that there. Yeah, eventually we had they had some small deities, but maybe even after I left. But anyway, the uh, yeah, so the two week <laughs> rule that was one of the rules, and and then when I first got there, one thing that really impressed me that Atreya had we had a meeting, you know, because there are a few new devotees, Ganagamyan. Uh, and Vasudeva, I forget, different people. And then we had this meeting and, and he, says, he says, I just want to impress on you that what you say in the day could get your throat slit at night. <laughs> wow. So, I, okay. So it really made me conscious of of what you can say to people and and I thought well that's interesting because after at first you know I I, I could understand you know this is the social this is so it wasn't the government so much as 
the Islamic society then, because, you know, most people liked Americans. It's just that, you know, to have us openly proselytize religion was not a good idea socially. But, but there was definitely a liberal section of society. But one of the things that struck me was the, kind of an epiphany was that, wait a minute, you know, we say whatever we want in American society, but instead of killing us, they just turn us off. It, and I thought, we have to be careful about what we say in American society, too. It's not just that just because we have so-called freedom of speech doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't take care of what we say. Anyway, that was just one thing I learned and I thought That's about in that that uh, environment. I I like language, so I like culture. I like language also. So I really worked very hard to learn Persian, which is does me absolutely no good now. But uh, I wow. can still I can even still speak a little bit. Somehow I have the, my faculties are good, you know. Amazing. Then, uh, so then. Uh, Iran was a fantastic experience in uh, in terms of like learning about Krishna consciousness, you know, and and I learned about Islam and there were some what you would call Parsis from India, but they're they're Zoroastrians or followers right. of Zartosht or Zoroaster, which is the ancient Persian religion from there were around the time of Christ, there were two. Christ and Muhammad, actually, there were two empires, the Persian Empire, mainly Zoroastrian. And then there was the Byzantine Empire, which has adopted Christianity. And so there were those two empires. And I told Bhakti Maharaj once, I said, you know, when Islam managed to take over Persia, I said, that was it. I mean, that's. That's like taking over America. I said, we, ha we have a chance now to, to take over America or at least to penetrate American society. I said, I think, I think it's a mistake. Anyway, I have all these criticisms about ISKCON, but they're, they're- Oh, not, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. They're not really, it's not really a criticism. I was just saying that, come on, Maharaj, let's, let's do more in America. I said, now yeah. is the chance before the, before the empire declines, it'll be a great feather on our cap. Like, like it was, you know, once Islam took the Persian empire, I mean, that's who the Maji was. I mean, not everyone believes that, but most people believe that the Maji, the, the three Kings who came to visit Christ, they were uh, part from the Persian empire. So, Mm -hmm. So Persia was just such a, now they're just a few Parsis in India. Nobody knows you know, who they are, but it was tremendous. And then when Islam, a bunch of nomads from the Arabian Peninsula, just desert people who lived in tents and, and villages and stuff, you know, and then they go and conquer the major, major empire. And, you know, one of the two major empires in, in the whole region, Tremendous accomplishment. So it would be something if devotees could do something more in the U.S. So I told that to 
Buck Schumann. And he agreed with me, you know. We we had a great friendship. I was very sorry when when he left. Yeah. So, so did it, did people were people joining in in Iran? Yes. At the end, there we had a few brahmacharis and and Prabhupada came and initiated. There were there were uh, I think three, like native Iranian people. Native Iranian. Wow. Yeah. And which was amazing. You know, the Sikhs had been there for generations. Oh. It's interesting. There Hindus also were in Afghanistan. I I, I yeah. imagine they're mostly out now, but but I met uh Hindu refugees from the Russian war in nineteen eighty eighty one, eighty two. Nice nice young people i met them in in mm -hmm. pakistan they were refugees so so they told me that they'd been taken their their families somehow had been taken to afghanistan 300 years ago so history is amazing you know i mean that yes. that whole region is there's so many subtleties and and like baluchistan you know is 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 a country that's in three countries, you know, Pakistan, Iran, and and Afghanistan. That's just offhand, off the cuff, you know. There's just right. so much there that we have no idea in the yeah. West, you know, from our very limited 200-year history. It's not you know, very significant. Yeah. So what, what happened after you came back from Iran? So then I had this kind of foolish idea that I should do something in the Middle East. Atreya wasn't really very supportive, but I, I went to Saudi Arabia. I thought, you know, I could make money there. And I thought maybe I can travel around the Middle East and and supervise some preaching or something. You know, mm -hmm. It was all gung-ho about the Middle East. It, it didn't turn out. I just stayed there for a year and a half or two and then went to Vrindavan and, and stayed in Vrindavan for a little while. But anyway, so so all that that's uh that's sort of my background especially during the Prabhupada era and then as i said just to sum up some devotees like all the the gbc and other leaders you know they they seem to have uh a more of an ability to lead men and women you know and to really um to organize big parties and big expansion you know it's more i was more of a maintenance person so i i remained most of the time throughout uh, kind of a what what i considered a mid-level manager and in Prabhupada's time a temple president was very was like a representative of Prabhupada and and very it was like prestige you know but then it just became temple president after Prabhupada left was kind of nobody. <laughs> so yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. Because I, I, I like when I talk to older devotees, they say like, okay, the temple president, it was like Prabhupada's talking to you if he's talking to you, you know, that's like the authority. But like yeah. you said, after after it kind of became less of a prestigious position. I wonder why that happened. Yeah, I guess the wasn't that connection anymore, maybe or Devotees would come to me years later and tell me, oh, you were my first temple president or this or that, you know, very kind of 
feeling worshipful. It make, made me feel embarrassed. I mean, I was just trying to take responsibility and do something yeah. and then and then devotees now even say things. One time I was in was it, Chicago and and Bhakti Bhakti Sarup Damodar Maharaj was there. Yeah. And for some reason he he was always nice to me, you know. And then you know, I thought we had this early connection when he joined. He joined in L.A. when I was there. And um, and then he said to me, you know, we're just talking. He said, you know, Dayananda, you did my first initiation fire. <laughs> I was like, I mean, in my mind, I can't remember hiring. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, really? Oh, that's. That's why you like me. <laughs> I could. I. I decided. Well, okay. It's not me. You don't like me because of me. I'm nobody. <laughs> I did your fire. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've had that experience also. For how did how were the uh, the eighties when all like the stuff hit the fan kind of deal? Yeah, how, what was your I want to skip over that kind of, you know, that okay. that's like the next. I, okay, I'll give you my decade by decade history. <laughs> yeah, so the, let's talk about the 80s. Okay, the, the 70s was all this expansion. Yeah. Uh, plus uh, immaturity and in some cases illegality, you know, some, you know, beyond immaturity. And then in the the 80s was the uh the succession turmoil what i call yes, the yes. succession turmoil and which is typical for even businesses you know they have if a business is privately owned then the, the people die and then the the, the heirs try, try to take control of the business and they don't run it well and the business goes into the ground and they have to get a professional manager and I mean, look at Steve Jobs. You know, he started Apple, and then they kind of kicked him out for a while, and yeah, and then he came back. And who was it, Scully or somebody who took over for a while, and then they got him back. So anyway, even in business, and business is is much more flexible and market oriented than religion. Religion is. I read this article. It said three kinds of organizations. They were talking about religion. Or maybe I don't know nonprofits maybe in there I don't know but religion government and business business is the most flexible and and uh, quick to change government is the next most flexible and religion can go on for generation and for centuries generations or centuries without changing and being mismanaged because it just goes on the backs of the faith of the people that was the way that the the article and i thought yeah i, I sounds right to me i mean <laughs> you know you read the history of the catholic church two popes and and the pope with one family and and how many mistresses and you know they just they went through all kinds of stuff you know and yeah. so yeah that's Anyway, so 80s. I wasn't going to give any uh, commentary. Turbulent, 
turbulent 80s. I just ended up giving too much commentary on the 80s. So (laughs) (laughs) turbulent 80s. And somehow I managed to to sort of weather these things, I think, because because uh, I'm not really Dayananda anymore. You know, I, I used to be you know, Dayananda, you know, well, you know, Dayananda now, and now, you know, oh, who's that? I, maybe I heard of him, you know, <laughs> but, but I used to be kind of well known. And so it was easier for me to deal with some of these people. And like, so you kind of, you're saying you purposely kind of pulled back and not in the forefront. No, I was always pulled back. I mean, I was just a, like a, 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 like I said, a middle manager or something. Anyway, so the 80s, without getting into too much of personal stuff, the 90s I see is there was a conscious effort to uh, to try to get rid of the, uh, the stigma of a, being a cult. So... Ramesh and I was involved a little bit in that in the late 80s. Rameshwar wanted to produce a, a book that showed that ISKCON was the outgrowth of the Vaishnava culture. So this was Garuda and, and me and Nandarani and others. So we uh so at that same time, uh the the money was so hard. We we didn't have the Sankirtan forces anymore. Yeah. And the, the movement was supported by uh, book distribution up to that point. So they had to sell the, the temple in, um, in Manhattan and um, other places were really having trouble in Potomac, Washington, D.C. Eventually, Rupanuga had to sell, carve off a little portion of land there and sell it to somebody so you know it's just rough times financially and then I mean I I was temple president in DC from uh 82 to 84 and it it was absolute hell I mean it's maybe you shouldn't talk about devotional service like that but it was absolute hell we had no devotees we had all the brahmacharis had gotten married yeah and uh and the other senior Prabhupada devotees they had all left and um so uh, you know if you're in your first year of marriage you don't want to go out on book distribution or something we were selling paintings it was financially it was very difficult anyway i'm bringing this up because on sunday i used to go in the in the parking lot you've been to Potomac. Yeah. And, um, I used to go and chant in the finish my rounds in the parking lot and walk back and forth and, and look at the cars and thinking, if we just had one of these cars, it would solve all of our financial problems. <laughs> just one. <laughs> How can I ask one of these Indian families for one of these cars? I'll tell you a cute story. Okay. I'm telling stories. that's what this this podcast is all about this kind of thing so here's a cute story that i think is funny you know there was this woman uh she she owned a company it was a computer it it was like what do they call them beltway bandit or something you know 
it's not a very polite term. It's like a company that offers uh, uh, consulting services to the government. They make their money off the government by offering consulting. So she was, she was in the game early on in, um, in the early eighties, she had already established this uh, uh, and they had a nice building. I used to, anyway, so nice, uh, a nice woman. And her husband was the, the, I think the CFO, he was the, like the accountant type. And somehow or other, this, this woman was this dynamic Indian woman. Maybe she was Cindy, you know, the, the Cindy's are well known for, for being uh, sharp business people. And then also a little interested in Krishna consciousness. So like the Hindujas. So, uh, so she would come regularly and I tried to, you know, be really friendly with her and accommodating. And, and I never asked her for money. I never asked her for anything. I just wanted to, you know, even though I was dying to, <laughs> I just tried to be careful, you know, and, and if she gave money, fine. If not, then, you know, she, beyond the fact that she had money, she, just the fact that she, I'd been in Iran. So I learned the value of having a friend. A friend is more valuable than anything. It's more valuable than money or anything. Because it's another story for another day, but a friend in Iran saved the necks of the devotees. Devotees could have been, they went through one period, they could have been seriously dealt with, you know, and this friend stepped forward from the Iranian society. And George Harrison was a friend, you know. So yeah. it's it's almost more important to have a good a great friend than than a lousy devotee. <laughs> that's, that's horrible to say. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm joking. But anyway, so, so anyway, after the, Lady. after the program, one Sunday, I came walking out, and there are these two or three brahmacharis, young guys, sitting on one side of it. We had picnic tables. I don't know how they do it now, but in the summer they used to have picnic tables and in the back in in the field in uh, Potomac, and so they were sitting on one side of this picnic table, and she was on the other side, and they were asking her which of the four regular principles she followed. God. I was like, God, you idiots! You know. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing you know so i i immediately sat down you know next to her you know and i said how do we know which ones you're following <laughs> that's i remember that clearly saying that you know, immediately having a kind of a comeback anyway so turbulent 80s and then in the 90s uh, both looking for financial support and for legitimacy in the face of all this cult problems. We were paying in, in our poor little temple and struggling like anything in, in Washington, D.C. I think $500 a month to, I think it was Amarendra's office in Los Angeles. He's a lawyer. He's been a 
has gone lawyer for a long time. So I think we were paying 500 just to, to take care of uh, legal problems from the anti-cultists, you know, from, from those who were suing us, Robin George and whoever else, you know, was right. devotees made mistakes by allowing minors to stay in ISKCON. It was crazy. So, uh, again, 70s immature period that continued also into the 80s to some degree. So then the, in the 90s, then the Indian community became much more supportive. And then, then from Mukunda and, uh, well, I would say especially Mukunda's office, Mukunda's sort of philosophy of, of ISKCON kind of, and uh, and then his sort of follower is uh, Anuttama, the um, GVC Anuttama. They kind of developed this um, uh, professionalism, I guess you would say. Mukunda changed. Uh, he started as public relations. And then he realized, no, we need communications. You know, he changed the, the name because, uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that either. So right. that you can. Let's fa let's fast forward to um, your book. Yes. What, what's your book about and what, what I show you to write it? Can I show these slides here? Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. For the last, uh, excuse me. <clears throat> I would say since 2005, I've been very interested in the idea that uh, Vaishnava culture and philosophy has solutions to the uh, to environmental issues. And at first, I thought, well, this is a way. It struck me as a way to for future preaching or future proselytizing or expansion, however you want to see it. So here's the environmental solution. That's the name of my book here. Here's this book. It's really a, it's 450 pages and it's, it's really a kind of a textbook. So oh. meant to be taught. It's would be taught in two courses, basically. It's, it's really uh, thorough and well-researched. And so Vaishnava culture is the solution to most environmental problems and there's two evils overconsumption is the root of nearly all environmental problems and this is right up the alley of it's not climate change climate change is a symptom of overconsumption we overconsume fossil fuels we create all this waste and pollution and then as a result there's climate change so right. it overconsumption is the root problem and what is overconsumption? Overconsumption is the desire, uh, you know, sangha steshu pajayate. So, sangat sangjayate kama. Kama is the problem, and it, meaning that it's our materialistic desires that, that we want to connect with all these things. The other thing that's a problem is for the last 200 years, or 300 years or however long recently in terms of millennia, there's been a tremendous, especially in Europe, there's been a tremendous 
shift to human-centric thinking. Our societies are human-centered. So even if you consider climate change, now why are people concerned about climate change? Oh, it's going to affect humanity. They're, humans are not concerned about nature. They're, cons they're concerned about humanity. So the way, I, the way I like to look at it is it's, it's like it, if, if someone killed somebody, if I killed someone and I get put on trial and then they sentence me, they say, oh, you're going to have to go to prison for the rest of your life or be executed, then it will be devastating for me. Well, yeah, but at what point do I think about the what I've done? So humanity is like that. They're they're not really thinking about what they're doing. They're, they are, they want it. Humanity wants to get rid of climate change so they can continue to consume. Mm. So it's like, you know, oh, now let me cry. I'm crying. I'm meaning I'm weeping. I'm, I'm, I'm lamenting because climate change, because mm -hmm. it's a, affecting me. I don't want to change my behavior. I just want to complain because uh, it's like now I have to go to jail. Oh, I have to go to jail. Is it, It's affecting my my enjoyment, ultimately. It's affecting my, yes, overconsumption. Yeah. So overconsumption that, uh, and it's cultural values that must control overconsumption. It's not laws. We're not going to pass a law. But we know that what happens if you pass a law, uh, prohibition time, they try to pass a law against alcohol. Yeah. So laws don't work just by making law it has to be cultural values and so values and traditions and then laws are at the heart of culture but values and traditions must be there and Vaishnava culture has such values and traditions from millennia and modern culture does not so I assert that every Vaishnava is an environmentalist Wow, the best by uh, environmentalist. If if you call yourself a Vaishnava, you try to follow the Bhagavad Gita, you chant a little bit. You're vegetarian. You're, you know, you go into the temple and nod your head at the deities, and you do, you know, you're a minimal Vaishnava. You are a great environmentalist because, on average, the the Vaishnava because of the culture itself on average a vaishnava is an environmentalist and a person who lives especially in america america is the most if you look at all the statistics america is the worst in terms of the environment i won't get too much so what is vaishnava culture it's 750 million people this is pan vaishnava culture what does it mean what does pan vaishnava mean well, I mean, by pan, I just mean like all, all. I see. And 750, where does that number come from? Um, it's kind of a, an approximation. Uh -huh. There's no census. India doesn't do a census on which uh, 
I think that they do Hindu and Muslim, but they don't do the, they don't break it up. Right. I really don't like the word Hindu. I just don't, you know, it's, and what's I, the biggest irony in, in my mind is, is Hindu Twa. Mm, so is that? Hindu Twa is a, is a conservative ethnic. You don't know what Hindu Twa is? I've heard the term, but I haven't. Yeah, it's a it's a some consider it like kind of fascist. It's a it's a very conservative Hindu oriented and they're very anti-Muslim. They're the kind of people who who say we should kill the if somebody's, you know, if we find a Muslim who's leading a cow to slaughter, we could kill. We should kill that person. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. They're very anti-Muslim. They object. They they say things like, "Oh, Muslims are trying to convert by marriage. You know, they want to marry our Hindu girls and convert them." You know, there's they have a lot of. It's hard for me to get into too much specifics, but so yeah, yeah. Here are all these. Uh, so Hindutva, but they, but they, and they're anti-Islam, but they use a word Hindu that that came from the Muslims. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Anyway, it's kind of almost an inside joke. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I won't, I won't get it. A powerful anyway. example of harmony with nature. Yes. Harmony, 750 million people, example of harmony with nature, and it's practical and observable when compared to modern global culture or what we used to call Western culture. I like the word, the term modern global culture. So to achieve harmony with nature, what do we do in terms of uh, the vision of a society? Now, I don't agree with, uh, with the sort of modern concept of it's kind of what I would call the liberal sort of socialist influenced uh, concept of, of environmentalism. It's really, I, it's a European concept. The Europeans destroyed the earth and now they have all these ideas about how to save the earth. That science and technology has been used to enable humans to destroy the earth. And now they have all these technologies to save. The, no its values, its culture. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so it requires kind of a, a, a shift of, uh, of mind here. Uh, so four things, I highlight these four things in Vaishnava culture. One is that at the heart is celebration of Leela and Nama and that all lives are equal. I mean, there's a lot of discussion of, of racism, but that's a common theme in environmentalists is speciesism, that we're, mm. we favor humans, but we don't, uh, we don't care as much about the other uh, species. And that verse in the Gita is, Vidya Vinaya Sampanne Brahmane Gavihastini Shuni Chaiva Shapakicha. There's two humans. One at the top of the human, Brahman, and the bottom is the dog eater. And there are three animals. So two humans and three animals. So I find that kind of interesting. You know, that there's, oh, yeah. a good point. there's more animals. There's a cow and an elephant and a dog than yeah. there are uh, 
humans. So all souls are equal. And Krishna loves trees and Prabhupada loved trees. So anyway, agrarian economy is an ideal. <coughs> and number four is the joys of austerity. You can't do austerity without getting some satisfaction from it. It's, mm. it's difficult to do, but there has to be a goal. There has to be some satisfaction. And, and theoretically, three quarters of traditional society is uh, attempting uh, austerity. That's brahmachari, vanaprastha, and sannyas. So three quarters, the Grihasta is only one quarter. I mean, it doesn't really work like that. But the point is that there's, within the traditional culture, there's a tremendous focus on austerity. So celebrating Leela's, uh, this is the most important of the four components. It, it's, it, these are the things that I propose and it's not just my proposal. It's based on a lot of research and reference to the literature that it substitutes the enjoyment, excuse me, the enjoyment of celebration, celebration of the leelas and namas for addiction to consumption. So this is the problem in overconsumption is caused by an addiction to consumption so and and it redirects the economy towards celebration interesting it focuses yes that's this is practical i mean when this came to me i thought oh my god this is it it focuses attention and these are kind of and also the first two are enjoyment and the economy so how do you get rid of an addiction it, enjoyment is an important part of it. But number three is it focuses attention on nature and the higher powers. It acknowledges humanity's debts to nature and the higher powers. Now that's an important, that debt idea is an important uh, concept in the, you know, Manu Sanghita, Manu talks about it, talk, talks about how the gods are debt. Uh, we owe debts to the gods in, in Rig Veda and you know, this idea of being indebted to the gods of the higher powers is, or demigods. Uh, the conclusion is that Vaishnava environmental science is the most important branch of Vaishnava Vedantic science. Now, I don't have any Shastric reference. This is uh, from Dayananda says. <laughs> Everything else is very well <laughs> referenced. Right. But it it genuinely it does it exposes flaws in modern biology and empirical sciences so why does it expose flaws just in brief um if you put people are uh, uh, run up against this all the time devotees run up against this all the time that uh, a religion is faith-based and science is fact-based mm -hmm. or there's religion and science okay well the religious cultures prior to 200 300 years all the religious cultures and especially a culture like vaishnava culture 
let's just look at Vaishnava culture. The, there was tremendous harmony with nature, it, relatively speaking, compared to modern culture. So modern culture is heavily based on empiric, empiricism. Empiricism meaning empirical science, fact-based. But it doesn't have this component of being harmonious with nature. So if you if you don't have this, if this is essential. If you don't have this component, how can you call yourself science? Science means knowledge. So in our system of knowledge, Vaishnava system of knowledge, we teach things like Ishavasyamidangsarvam. We teach things like uh, Krishna says in the Gita that you, he explains how we have to reciprocate with the demigods or with the supreme Vishnu, Yagyartat, Karmanon Yatra. So all these, we have all these injunctions. So right alongside of all of our stories in Srimad Bhagavatam that they say are just myths, we have injunctions that, that one verse I can't remember in Bhagavatam says that uh, that desire is so strong that a person can consume the entire earth. So that's kind of like the, what modern society is doing. They're, they're consuming the entire earth. So, but we have that in Bhagavatam. So they want to criticize our stories or any story in the Bible or, or any of these stories. These empiricists, and then they present the Big Bang Theory, they present the theory of evolution. So, the, okay, so those may have some facts involved with them, but they don't have the, the essential ingredient, which is, to prevent humanity from destroying itself by destroying nature. So that's knowledge. We know destruction is part of ignorance. So how can science, which means knowledge, be pure knowledge? It's not. There's a component of ignorance in there. And you want to say that you're fact-based and and this other thing religion is faith-based no it's not this is you have faith in in science and technology and it's not good it has ignorance in it so anyway arguments like that so and then another dayananda statement it, it is the heart of future propagation of vaishnava philosophy samkirtan and culture i don't have time for the the second you're saying you're saying environment of environmental science is the heart of future propagation yes okay that, that's a dayananda statement I, I i i i'm predicting the future i i don't have any uh could you could you kind of explain that unpack that a little bit more do you mean that because people are attracted to um helping the environment therefore they will be attracted to krishna consciousness uh in part but i think that environmental issues will uh decade by decade become more and more uh serious 
Right. They'll, I mean, I, I'm not a end of the world person like, um, like some people, I won't say any names. We, we're <laughs> private. <laughs> some people, but I do believe that there's some indication that climate change can can change the balance of the international society mm. and the way uh, people become wealthy and the way people become poor. So right now, America is in the top one or two percent mm. of the wealthiest people in, on the planet so america might you know sink down to 20 percent and uh i don't know bulgaria might come, become the first one or something you know there there's bound to be shifts you know they say that when the it could cause changes in the ice formation in the north so that there might be a northwest passage or something you know for for ships and transportation to come through Canada or something. So then Canada might become rich. I mean, right. the point is that people are always going to become rich. Jivo Jivasya. There's yeah. always going to be somebody who eats another person, you know. So, yeah. but there's always going to be problem with um, I'm not always, but for a long time. In the future, there are going to continue to be problems with the environment. Because if you look at it objectively, people will not stop their greed. They will not stop their overconsumption. The only way they can stop it is if nature stops them by, some, by killing off a bunch of people or by, you know, some kind of means even governments are not going to be able to to really uh solve this problem and and we know that this is at the heart of the human condition that it's we know it's at the heart of the human condition and all of the yoga systems are meant to become detached from this world. So we know that this has been going on since the first living entity came into the material world. So now we have technology that allows us to, to exploit on a, a greater level. We can kill and exploit like never before. So what I'm saying is that this is a fantastic preaching opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that it's not going away. I'm an old man, you know. I, it's not like, you know, my time is nearly finished, you know. But I'm hoping that that young people in in the Vaishnava movement, and like I will take advantage of this. And I think that it's inevitable that they will. You know, mm -hmm. if they don't understand now, then in another generation or another however long a generation is 20 30 years it's it's inevitable we we have the philosophy that deals with this and mm -hmm. i think one advantage of of getting on board now is that the vaishnava culture it's still around now a big change started in the 
after India got independence and Nehru was all interested in socialism and and uh, so there were there were a lot of changes in the 50s and then when uh, when Rajiv Gandhi and and the Congress decided to uh, become more part of the global economy in the late 80s and early 90s India changed again and became even more materialistic and uh, and uh, really ushered in what I call the modern global culture that that really uh, disrupts Vaishnava culture. And I, I think I'm, I can say these things because these are the kinds of things that Prabhupada said that, you know, he, he was not a big fan of in, industrialization and Western industry and you can't eat nuts and bolts and statements like yeah. that. So, and, um, did you have another, uh, slide deck? I do seven more. I can go through them quickly. Sure. Yeah. We have time. Okay. Here's the, Okay, I'm, I'm calling this vocabulary because I think that devotees would do well just to just to add vocabulary to their to their. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, presentation of Krishna consciousness. It's not right. this. This is core Krishna consciousness. This is the core Vaishnavism. What I'm what I'm talking about here. It's not like and also, if we chant Hare Krishna, that will also help you know, good health or whatever, something. But uh, human-centered versus life-centered. So these are the four uh, items that I talk about, that human-centered versus life-centered. Uh, life-centered means that, means soul-centered. I prefer the word life because uh, soul has kind of an Abrahamic religion, religious concept. But all souls are equal. 518, Vidya and then uh, 1854 is Brahma Bhuta Prasannatma, and then Samaksarva Bhuteshu, meaning being equal to all beings. Um, that same concept does not exist in the Abrahamic religions. This is one reason why. Uh, why they've gotten so much trouble with the environment. So some Westerners, Europeans and Americans, they propose ecocentrism. See, I'm talking at the top, human centrism versus life centrism. So, so they say, yes, too much human centrism. So we should have ecocentrism, meaning that uh, nature is at this should be the center. So basically, they're proposing a kind of a new religion, a new philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's just not enough. What we need is Ishvara centric. That soul centric means uh, Brahma. Soul means Brahma. It means Para Brahma. It means Ishvara. Yes, it means Atma. It means all entities are. But we have such a wonderful concept of Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan. We have such a wonderful concept of, of Ishvara, Brahman, uh, Bhagavan in, uh, in Vaishnava philosophy. 
that it just go it just goes far beyond uh, the Abrahamic concept of God. They just have to say God or Allah. I mean, we have Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagwan. We have Atma that's that's part and parcel of the supreme. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. So I, I don't particularly like to use the word God, but so Ishara centric, Vishnu or Krishna. <clears throat> so back again to overconsumption. Overconsumption. I, I said this a few times. Jayato Vishayan Punksa. And also on, in 1621, the three gates to hell are Kama, Krodha, Lova. So Kama is lust and Lova is, is uh, greed. And I say that Kama and Lobha are basically equal with overconsumption. This is the mm -hmm. problem of modern society is that it's, there's no, you know, people like Elon Musk and um, I'm sure, uh, what's his name, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and many others would say there's nothing wrong with all this consumption. We'll deal with it. Yeah. But this, this is the this is the problem of the living entity that comes into this world. This is the problem that we, that Bhagavad Gita, that Krishna is presenting, that we have to deal with. It's not, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos may have solutions to, so that we can continue to consume, but Krishna is saying, no, the, the whole idea of becoming attached is the, uh, is the problem we don't want to try to adjust it so we can continue to do it more the way to counter lust is enjoyment so in 259 it says reservoir jung or so yes that we need to develop a higher taste and then in the shikshastika anandam puti vardhanam overconsumption so enjoyment replaces overconsumption so how do we enjoy in Krishna consciousness? It's through number three, celebration of Leela and Nama is Vaishnava enjoyment. And whether it's it's Dashavatar or Krishna Leela or, or any uh, Leelas throughout or Ram, Ram Leela, all these... Uh, Dashera, all these celebrations within traditional Vaishnava culture. I love that celebration of Leela Nam is the Vaishnav is Vaishnav enjoyment. I really love the way that's put. Good. It's very huh? true. I'm glad. Thank you. That's my celebration of Leela Nam replaces the desire for overconsumption and the consumer economy. So look at all the things that are at the heart of, I mean, if you don't believe that celebration of Leela Nama is at the heart of this, this hundreds of millions strong, millennia old, why just consider art, drama, dance, music, architecture, festivals, parades, personal worship, temple worship, right. so many things. Okay, sure, you can find Shiva, you can find, you know, all kinds of other art and drama and dance, but the how rich is the Vaishnava representation in all of these aspects, you know, and these represent mm -hmm. enjoyment. You enjoy art, drama, dance, music, architecture. All these represent how Vaishnavas enjoy. 
And uh, one statement by uh, Valpe Maharaj, by uh, Kshetra, <laughs> Krishna Kshetra Maharaj. Yeah. His, his other name came first in my head. Right. Krishna Kshetra Maharaj said in, in your conversation with him, he said, you know, he's an expert on Srimad Bhagavatam. He says that, that Srimad Bhagavatam is throughout, I wish I, I had I jotted down, but anyway, he says it's throughout South Asian culture. It just goes so deep and so broad. Yeah. So that's what this is, art, drama, dance. It's all based on, on Bhagavatam and, and Ramayana. Celebration of Leela Nama does two things. It replaces the desire for overconsumption by offering enjoyment and the consumer economy. Mm. So it has an economic impact. And then I know devotees like to talk about agrarian economy. As soon as they think about the environment, they say, oh, well, we have this solution, an agrarian economy. Yeah. But... Um, I'm a very practical person. It's, it's unfortunately what we can do is minuscule in terms of what uh, uh, establishing farms and and making these model. Uh, the, first of all, there are no no country in the world is an agrarian has an agrarian economy. They have all transitioned to agricultural economies which basically started in uh, about three or 400 years ago, maybe a little further in Europe. The idea of augmenting the, the simple agrarian economy, which, was, which would locally, which would serve the local area, it might be a local city or some towns in the local area. Agricultural economy is, uh, produces l large amounts of food for uh, shipping. So this is when Europeans began to colonize and, and uh, develop ships and they, and they brought back uh, food and minerals and things like that. So that kind of shift. Uh, now, there are no purely agrarian countries. Even India is has a it has a very significant agricultural component to its economy so an agrarian economy is a long way to go it's a big however enjoyment replaces overconsumption celebration of leela nama is our specialty and if we can do that, we can make a lot of money. We can buy a lot of land. Mm -hmm. Sounds a little coarse, I guess. Make a lot of money, buy a lot of land. But <laughs> I mean, straight to the point. I like that. So the joy of austerity and tolerating duality. I mean, right in the our basic literature throughout the Gita, it talks about tolerating, tolerating inconvenience austerity and we learn about the creation of the universe how brahma created the universe so what does he say tapa that's the first thing he hears so this idea of austerity 
As soon as you talk about austerity in modern society, it's a dirty word. That's it. Seven. Oh, forgot. What is advanced civilization or developed country? This is a sort of a pet thing of mine. Uh, the Prophet talks a lot about advanced civilization. Advanced civilization actually is is Aryan Aryan civilization in mm -hmm. the uh, ancient like Vedic culture. But modern concept, if you do some research, I came across this article by a, a Caltech professor from the, he was writing in the 50s or 60s. And he was talking about uh, advancement. Technology is the, and I, he's not unique. I think that there is a general idea almost everywhere that advancement, that technology equals advancement. And a developed economy means an economy that's developed to take advantage, uh, to exploit nature, to, to, to extract natural resources. Right. So advance, the idea of equating even people who are like Hindu apologists, you know, they'll say, oh, well, there's airplanes in, in the Vedic literatures. And <laughs> so they're, they're talking about technology. It's, in my mind, they get sucked into the idea that technology is the index of advancement. I mean, Vyasadeva didn't have an airplane in his ashram, but Vyasadeva was the most advanced. So, so my my proposal is that these these ancient people that we consider primitive, we meaning uh, I don't mean we, I mean modern society, yeah, considers them primitive because they had very little technology. Those people were advanced because they weren't destroying nature. So we have, on the other hand, and our anthropologists are what is it called? Paleontologists, these, the, all these uh, historians, they always look toward technology. I mean, this is really the, the modern shift, in, I would say, in history and, and archaeology, because they can't really understand the, they can't understand the psyche of the ancient people. They can't understand the really exactly how they're I don't like to use the word religion, but how how was their sacrifice? They can't re recreate how these people sacrificed. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful article on uh, <clears throat> on ancient. Uh, it was talking about Proto-Indo-European sacrifice, and in that article, he says that all the pre uh, all the ancient cultures had some form of sacrifice so we as soon as they sacrifice sometimes people think of human sacrifice but the sacrifice is there as a central component of all cultures and even within christian culture now the christ is the lamb the sacrificial lamb so even there and then in in the uh, korban, korban in 
in Islam is sacrifice. They sacrifice goats and and uh, Jews also have gorban. So sacrifice exists to some extent today, and it's sometimes put aside. Krishna in the third and fourth chapter talks about sacrifice, yagya. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult for modern people, scholars and just sort of educated people to understand really what advanced civilization is about. It's a different psyche and a different cultural focus. They didn't, maybe they didn't even have a wheel, but that doesn't mean they weren't advanced because they were doing, they were centered on their sacrifice, their yagya. They were, they were trying to develop their spirituality, their relationship with the higher powers, their, Right. And harmony with nature. Uh, Prabhu, so how can someone get a hold of your book? Are, are, are you, have you published it and it's released? No, this is, there's this thing here, not for resale. This is a, a this is a proof, <laughs> proof copy. How do I do this here? Yeah, like that. I can do. Uh... This is a proof copy and. Uh... Show, us again. Show us again. I have you on the full screen now. Okay. Uh, the environmental solution over consumption and misplaced enjoyment. Are you are you going to overconsumption is misplaced enjoyment? Right. Are you going to be able uh, to you know publish it and and uh, people can buy copies or? Oh yeah yeah. Okay. When's I, that happening? Um. Well, that right away. I, I mean, it's in. It's being edited now. I I finished my own editing like a few iterations but uh it's uh it's very thorough it's divided into three parts mm -hmm. one i would say is philosophy about 125 pages of philosophy uh, establishing philosophical bases for culture and then number two is culture looking at the world the prominent world cultures and everything is in relation to the environment how how the philosophies of the world or i don't want to say philosophies i say what i say in the book is schools of knowledge mm -hmm. so islam science socialism democracy christianity all those are schools of knowledge mm -hmm. and then how do those contribute to culture that's section number two and then the third section is a uh it's a discussion based on a an actual text it's a it's a discussion from the vaishnava perspective of environmental science modern environmental science so it's really authoritative i've got like each section has about 400 footnotes there's 1100 footnotes in all wow so it's very it's very um well referenced i have a question so what would you say to the modern Hare Krishna movement, how they could adopt some of the principles or some of the ideas that you have in the book in a more holistic way, like looking at the Hare Krishna movement at 2022? This is a, well, two things. One is that 
I would like to see. I, no, I don't know. But I I always lead with the negative. Okay, let's go with the positive. <laughs> let's lead with the positive. Uh, I like to see devotees developing more of this vocabulary that I tried to introduce here. Right, right. Develop the environmental vocabulary, which is really just learning to. It's kind of learning a cultural language. It's it's just saying things a little, saying the same thing a little differently. And what would be the effect of that, though, if they adopted that vocabulary? Sorry? What would be the effect of adopting that vocabulary in the way like, that you're saying? I think devotees, also, along with the vocabulary, I think devotees should be proud of being environmentalists. Mm. They, they should not misunderstand. As soon as you say environmentalist, they say, oh, well, you know, we have a couple of farms. Let's see, uh, Shivananda has one, Shivananda Maharaj has one. And then, uh, oh, yeah, the eco village in near Bombay. And yeah, we have these farms. Well, in the United States, it's a little problem. You know, it's immediately <laughs> getting on the defensive. Yeah. And then, oh, well, we're vegetarian. Oh, are you vegan? Well, no, not really, but we're trying. And then, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I find it very unfortunate. Devotees, one, they should be proud to be environmentalist because a Vaishnava is an environmentalist. A vegan is not a environmentalist. Right. The vegans like Jains cannot have a complete society. The Jain society is a, is a parasite society. It's a parasite. It's a wonderful, wonderful doctrine, but they don't have a complete society they couldn't exist in their own country or their own place why is that they don't farm oh because because they're about like killing exactly oh so interesting. thousands of years they're not farmers they have to depend on somebody else to pick their spinach interesting so the vegans are like that they they can't exist independently they they need fossil fuels they need all kinds of things for that are that are counter to the vaishnava concept the vaishnava vedanta is far above and the fact that vaishnava vedanta is focused on uh on yagya on sacrifice that's the key component it's not mm -hmm. a hingsa milk or it's not, it's not you know is your you know, staying away from honey or something like that. It's doing, it's doing harm. And, and, but, but, but that's, but that's better than, but having those things is better than, uh, maybe consuming those things in a, in a mode of passion or ignorance, right? Because I would you're, say, you're talking about the ideal, right? I would say, no, I would say I'm, I'm more of a revolutionary than that. I would say that that the best see the thing is the best the best defense is an offense, you know. I, <laughs> right. I say that I, you're talking about you know all these uh I know that it's a resolution that we have to have a, a hinks of milk and it's gone. But but I, 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 I just need to make this kind of, I tend to speak sometimes in a little hyperbole, but, or, or try to be a little radical to overcompensate. But I feel that 
the fact that devotees are more concerned with the quality of the food and somehow they've omitted the idea that it's offered to Vishnu Krishna, that it's a part of the yajna that Krishna talks about in Bhagavad Gita. Yajna is at the heart. It's been at the heart of the Vedic culture, the Vaishnava culture, all the Vedantic cultures that extend from the Vedas and to just kind of like skip over it is just, I'm sorry, but I don't go for that. It's like, it's like Jane's. Okay. Let's, let's say, let's roll the clock back, you know, for 2000 years and, and Jane's are making all this point about how, oh, you can't eat potatoes. Well, potatoes are from Peru, but um, you can't eat what whatever something uh, some root vegetable you know radish you can't eat radishes you know that kills the thing and then did you have vaishnavas or did you you know were, or vedantas follow followers of the vedas they're anti-veda they're, they're anti-sacrifice that's jain mm -hmm. and, and buddha so they they don't accept the potency of sacrifice we accept that the sacrifice is all powerful. Sacrifice, it cements our relationship with the Supreme. And we have the offering of the food, but we have our sacrifices, Sankirtan Yajna. Mm. So to skip over sacrifice and get defensive about, oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll stop eating so much honey or will do a hinks of this or you know so my point is a little different yeah that's fine do those things and try to be in with the times you you want to preach we when when i was uh, first a devotee the macrobiotic diet was very popular among the hippies so we used to serve that in the temples and and when i was in iran they had the we had a very good relationship with the raw eaters, they call themselves. The, the, uh, they only ate raw foods and a lot of onions. <laughs> so we used to, we had to have a relationship with these people. So I'm not saying not to have a relationship with those people, but I am saying that we should be very conscious of the fact that that we are far better than them. <laughs> There's no question. So you're basically we, saying don't take out we, the sacrifice portion of it. We meaning not me, but you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you Vaishnavas. Right. I'm sorry, you were saying what? No, that, that your, your, your point is that Okay, you can do all these things, but don't lose focus on sacrifice. Sankirtan, this is the main point of Vaishnavism. What was Yagya, the first yeah. thing? The first thing that Yudhishthir wanted to do after the, right. the battle. I mean, he was like devastated. Oh my God, what have I done? We have to do a sacrifice. You know, yeah. sacrifice is the center of everything. And we have offering food. That's sacrifice and we have japa yajnanam japa yajnasmi we have sankirtan yajna so we have this sankirtan yajna really is this that term that i 
I think I invented kind of the celebration of Lila and Nama. Mm. That's that's Sankirtan Yagya. Well, Dayananda Prabhu, it was really fantastic talking <laughs> to you. Um, I, I just want to ask, uh, give you a chance to, what would you say in conclusion? Uh, what do you want to leave the uh, viewers with uh, today? Um, devotees are environmentalists. They, yeah. as they are, you know, if they learn the lingo a little bit, that's fine. If not, just be confident that they're better environmentalists. Don't feel guilty about any plastic you use or or that we haven't developed our farms or anything like that. We're better environmentalists. If you don't know exactly why, just it's not important. Just listen to me. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to get, thank you for that. If you want to get in touch with Dayananda Prabhu, uh, you can get in touch with his email. Um, it's there on the screen for all the audio listeners. It's Dayananda, D-A-Y-A-N-A-N-D-A. 1967 at outlook.com that's how you can contact him if you have any questions or if you like what you heard or if you didn't like what you heard you can get in, into an argument with him over email too <laughs> i'm sure he'll appreciate uh that but uh again prabhu thank you so much it was so wonderful to talk to you and see you again after so long yes thank you so much i appreciate it very much yes um and prabhu stay on i'm just going to turn off the recording thank okay. you everyone for listening Hare krishna Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare